You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgbm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are at the KGVM offices, speaking via Zoom with archaeologist Julie Shablitsky. But first... Crystal, let's check in. How was your week? Oh, it was a great week, a busy week. We're doing a lot right now for Black History Month. So, Yay. of course, February is Black History Month. Yep. And so we're doing a lot of um, Facebook posts, a lot of um, articles have come out that we've written about Black History Month, specifically to Montana, mm-hmm. um, the black community in Bozeman, but also the black ki- community in Montana in general. So, yeah, so and our two previous great. podcasts, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, of course, all our podcasts this month are kind of focused on black history so black women yeah Yeah, and a lot of talking about a lot of um yeah african-american women which is super exciting yeah so um so that was great but what about you nancy i know you had a really exciting week yeah it's been a little (laughs) crazy just back from las vegas um not for vacation but for work so doing a fall ordering for mocha boutique for the shop and um i took my whole team with me so there was four of us it is a gigantic show uh one called magic and one called project different lines of all kinds of women's clothing accessories shoes there's men's stuff there too but we don't ever look at that so (laughs) but um we had a wonderful time the weather was was great and just flew back in at midnight last night so here we are i know so i'm excited to get uh, back to podcast i think it's amazing that you're like anthropology professor by day and fashion maven by night. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes it yeah. reverses. And reverse. I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's, that's great. Yeah. I love that. I love that you're, you know, that you get to do both of these things. Yeah. We were, way. we were getting a, a little time zone mixed up, um, on the way coming back. And so I was giving, my team a little discussion that I usually give in my linguistics class when I teach about how the way we talk about time and think about which way it moves is all relative culturally speaking and oh my they were like wow and I'm like yeah that concludes your anthropology lesson for right today. They so had yes their anthro class so they get the their day. little dose exactly <laughs> <laughs> that's great well we're so glad to have you here Julie thanks so much for joining us today well thanks for having me So, Julie, I'm going to start off by telling our listeners a little bit about you. Dr. Julie Shablitsky is Chief of the Cultural Resources Division at the Maryland Department of Transportation. Yes, she works at the Department of Transportation as an archaeologist, so we'll talk a little bit more about that. She graduated with her doctorate from Portland State University in Oregon with an emphasis in archaeology. After graduation, Julie carried out research on the Donner Party, That one that you're thinking of, yes, that's the one, the Donner Party of California, and the medieval estate of Amosfield of Scotland, which sounds fascinating. 
Her Maryland research includes African America, cemeteries, and the recovery of DNA from artifacts. Welcome, Julie. So, Julie, we like to start off by asking asking our guests how they got into the fields of anthropology and really, in your case, the field of archaeology. So can you give us a little recap of that? Yeah, it's not that exciting, actually. Um, I grew up in, in rural Minnesota, and uh, I had uncles who were really into collecting arrowheads in the fields. And they took me along a couple of times and taught me how to find, uh, you know, pre-contact Native American sites. And um, I kind of got interested in just all the people who used to live before us. And that kind of, you know, sparked an interest when I was seven. And then I would go to the library in my little small, you know, farm town in Minnesota, check out books during the summertime on Mesoamerican Egypt. And I was just, I was dazzled by mummies and gold and all the things that these archaeologists would find and pyramids. And, um, but then as I began to get older, and when I went to college, I began to realize that that history is everywhere. It's in your own backyard. And so I didn't have to, you know, go across the world to find uh, exciting stories of people who lived before me that I could find those literally in my own backyard. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I think that that Egyptology brings yeah. a lot of people in. We, we both were also enamored yeah. with Egypt yeah. for a while. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, like you said, you kind of figure out, oh, it's everywhere. It's it's right here. So I can do this right here where I live. So I think that's amazing. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. It's more Wonderful than just story. golden tombs and pyramids. But yes. that stuff is still cool. Yeah. We're not downplaying that at all. Right. Um, yeah. So, Julie, when I work with um, anthropology students, I'm often giving them information about possible career opportunities opportunities, often because they know their parents are going to ask them, why are you majoring in anthropology once they kind of find out that it's a thing? But also, I just like them to know that there's a lot of different routes that they can go. Um, Some of those career opportunities include state and federal agencies like the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management, and also transportation departments that are located in each state. So we have the Montana Department of Transportation. Um, and you're at the Maryland Department of Transportation. So for archaeology students um, who might be out there listening, or for their parents, um, tell us a little bit about what your work is like at MDOT, Maryland Department of Transportation, as the chief archaeologist. Sure, yeah. I mean, interestingly enough, my parents said the same thing. I would never get a job. And I've had a, <laughs> I've had a job in archaeology being paid ever since I've been 18 years old, making $3 in the basement at Augustana College in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So I too is that was that person. Um, but that's the thing is that there are many jobs um, in anthropology, archaeology specifically, and you need at least a master's degree or perhaps even a PhD. And uh, those jobs are not just in universities. I mean, if you want to teach and teach people how to do archaeology and why it's important and theory and all that, that's that's one thing. But there are many more positions in either state, federal, sometimes even local agencies. And the reason that those jobs are there for archaeologists is because there are both federal and sometimes state laws that require these agencies to consider their impacts on historic bridges, on archaeological sites, on cemeteries. So before the federal government and the, or the state government will provide money to do these projects, we have to go out there and find out where these important historic sites may be and help the projects design around them so that they can avoid, minimize, or mitigate those impacts to those important cultural resources. So that's the reason we have those jobs, and those jobs are very well-paying. 
lot of times they are, are they have pensions attached to them. You have great vacation um, jobs and or jobs attached to that. So there's a lot of things you can do in um, the field of, of archaeology and history um, as long as you have a graduate degree. Yeah, and you know, right now is a really good time for students to be graduating and looking for jobs with state and federal agencies, because it seems like there's been a a lot of people retiring from special federal agencies in these last few years. So now they can really get their foot in the door and get some of those great jobs, really good jobs. So whenever students come to me and ask, I always say, well, you know, look at the BLM, look at the Bureau of Land Management, look at the state um, opportunities, and also the, you know, the Departments of Transportation, because they do have um, jobs for historians and archaeologists, which is exciting. Yeah, that's right. The um, the interesting thing is that each Department of Transportation, each state, they're the largest funders of architectural history and archaeology, because they do so much ground disturbance. And so that's why, you know, just here in Maryland, I have a team of a dozen archaeologists and architectural historians that I oversee. But in addition to that, we have private consulting firms that also have archaeologists and architectural historians who we then hire teams of to go out and do all the work that we need to have done. So there really is. And and we're actually having a, a, a crisis right now in the discipline where we don't have enough archaeologists out there. There's just not enough of them out there to employ. So not only do you need that good education, but you also not need to have experience um, in the field. And uh, we just don't see those people coming into the field like they used to in the 80s, 90s, and, and 2000s. Right, right. Yeah, it's definitely a growing, expanding field, and it does seem like it, it's a great major for people. And I think mm-hmm. just for some of them, it's that hurdle of, uh, at least out here, maybe getting themselves to go back to grad school. Mm-hmm. But um, all of our students who've done it have gotten employment, so that's yeah. that's been wonderful. Mm-hmm. So, Julie, I want to get into a little bit about one of your projects, which is very relevant for us for Black History Month. And this is something you've done um, as chief archaeologist uh, at the Maryland Department of Transportation. You led an archaeological excavation that discovered uh, important new information about um, the home of a once enslaved man, an African-American named Benjamin Ross. And he is the father of the woman we know as the famed abolitionist and Underground Railroad conductor Harriet Tubman. So I was wondering if you could start off telling us and our listeners a little bit about what you knew maybe from historical documents first, about Benjamin Ross um, and his wife, Harriet Ritt Green, and um, what we know about this place that you ended up then conducting excavations at. Sure. So, you know, everybody has heard of Harriet Tubman. She is, you know, the conductor, the main conductor of the Underground Railroad, which was not an actual Underground Railroad, but it was a series of safe houses that uh, she used to move enslaved people north to freedom, to the Pennsylvania border. Uh, Here in Maryland was where she was born, the eastern shore, in a very kind of swampy, warm environment. Uh, And and this is where she was born. She lived until she began, she she fled. And um, she came back how many times, I think about a dozen or half dozen or more times to, to take people to freedom. So what we know about her is, is from her oral history, what she said about her life. But what we didn't know a lot about is her family, specifically her father. We knew she heard she had a father named Ben Ross. And um, we knew that he was enslaved by Anthony Thompson. 
Her mother, Rit Green, was enslaved by someone else completely different, Mary Brodus. And Mary Brodus and Anthony Thompson married, and that's how Rit Green and Ben Ross came to meet each other and to eventually marry and start a family. And uh, one of the children, of course, was Harriet Tubman. Now, the interesting thing that I was asked a couple of years ago, right before COVID hit, was by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. They had just acquired a piece of what used to be Anthony Thompson's uh, property. And they thought, based on some land deeds as well as um, a will, that Ben Ross's home place was somewhere on the property they just acquired. They needed an archaeologist to, to try and find this location. Where was his home? Because it was no longer standing. It was now an archaeological site. And this was an interesting challenge because I had never been to that part of the eastern shore of Maryland, which is um, very rural, very um, swampy, very, very wooded. And I, and I was asked by them to go ahead and search for this particular site for the main reason is that we have a program at the Maryland Department of Transportation where if we have a transportation link that we can make to an historic site, we can find funding to, to help people on it. And since we do so much archaeology anyway, we, in a sense, have become experts in this. So we know how to find really hard to find sites. So we went out to the site, we looked at it where it could be. And I was a little intimidated, but I thought, you know what, if it's here, we're going to find it because we have, we were able to make a search area. So what we did is we looked at the, the uh, historical documents, had a search area, and I went ahead and hired a team of about a dozen archaeologists. And we went through this swampy, wooded area in this, along the Blackwater River on the eastern shore of Maryland, looking for the presence or absence of broken artifacts that dated to the time that Ben Ross lived there. So 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. So as we began to excavate, I thought, you know what, we're going to find sites all over the place. This place has been lived in for years. But interestingly enough, in that particular search area, only one site ended up being the place that could even date to that time period. So what we ended up doing is we, we thought, okay, this is interesting. We have broken ceramics. We have uh, nails. We have bricks, everything that says that there's a home here. And these broken bits of artifacts are dating to that time period. Well, how do we go ahead and confirm that this is indeed Ben Ross's cabin or the place where he lived? Again, going back to the historical documents, looking to make sure that was a spot, uh, looking at the artifacts dating them to those, that time period and knowing that it couldn't be any other location. It was kind of guilty by elimination. So in this case, we thought that there could be no other place. No one else could have lived here. So that's why we felt confident in thinking that this is where Ben Ross lived. Kind of to go back um, a little bit and talk a little bit more about Harriet Tubman and and this the importance of this home is it they knew of course that Ben Ross was Harriet Tubman's father and they knew the mm-hmm. significance of this place and so like kind of going back to what you were saying with the uh, Maryland Department of Transportation as well so these significant sites need to be protected and preserved and so when they opened this area that's why they brought you in would they have done this if it wasn't um the home place of harriet tubman do you think i think that if they just knew another random person lived in this part of a newly acquired bit of federal property i don't know but 
I will say that with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, what's important to them is not just the natural resources, but the cultural resources. So it was important in this case to know not only was there Ben Ross living here, but who else lived here of African descent that was part of this enslaved community that was on the Anthony Thompson property. And in this case, we only found that one site, but that was only part of Anthony Thompson's property. And the interesting thing about that space when we were there is that what was interesting is how far away Ben Ross's place was from the main Anthony Thompson home. Because a lot of people think, well, when you think of a slave cabin or where enslaved people lived, it was really close to their home. And that's not necessarily the case. That people who were enslaved were there and they weren't necessarily always going to run away because the slave owners knew that if they could have the people they enslaved put down roots. So that means getting married, having children and having those children living in that one space, that there's no way that they would run. In a way, they had these these mental shackles, if you will. So I think that there was never that fear. So here we have Anthony Thompson living a mile away from a person he's enslaving. So to me, that was interesting um, because it really gave us a new kind of template and formula to use when we're looking for places like this on the landscape. Um, we need to look far afield. We can't just look in, you know, the, the plantation owner's backyard or the, or the enslaver's backyard that is these places are farther, farther afield. Um, the other interesting thing I think that's worth noting about uh, the location is that when you go into this space, into this environment, you realize how unforgiving it is. It's wet. It's, it's you know, full of bugs, biting flies. Um, uh, it's, it's kind of a bit treacherous. At the same time, it's also next to the Blackwater River, which is full of black mariners who knew how to read the stars who knew how to navigate the wetlands. And all of this information was like gold to Harriet Tubman. With her being able to live in this area for at least part of her life and be able to interact with these people that were on the waterways and her having that experience from her father and how to negotiate these kind of rustic conditions, this gave her everything she needed to be successful as the main conductor on this Underground Railroad. It gave her that confidence in the ability to succeed. And this came from her father. I find, I find this story fascinating and a, and a bit confusing too, Julie. So I'm going to ask you another, another couple of questions here. So we think of Harriet Tubman as being a, um, a slave that then ran away and got her freedom and helped others. But as we were reading more about this story and the articles that were coming around, you know, we're, we're hearing that, um, her father, Benjamin Ross, was actually freed, or what's the word, manumission, after the death of Anthony Thompson, his owner. So he was freed sort of in the will after a certain period of time and then given a piece of the property so that this house was actually then not just a slave cabin anymore. It had be, it became his home um, that he owned, which I, I find kind of remarkable and interesting. And you hear these stories happening. And then, and then I guess, um, you said the wife of Anthony Thompson, who was the owner of Harriet's mother, they, there was no freedom then given, um, even though Ben Ross, her father was freed, that freedom was not also given to Harriet or her mother, but yet they were able to stay in this cabin and, and live there sort of as a family, but then had to just, I guess, go back and forth to their, 
There are slave jobs, which just sounds bizarre to me, you know, trying to think of that. But um, so we just wanted to sort of have you think about that a little bit. And, and how, how do you then confirm that this is maybe Ben Ross's house and that he's actually a freedman living there versus an African-American slave cabin? Is there any way to have any distinction between those? Would you find things in his cabin that you wouldn't find if he was just a slave living in a slave cabin on Anthony Thompson's property. Okay, those are a lot of questions, and I'm going to try and try and break it down because it, it's it's a confusing question. Because and I hopefully I can ex- I can explain this properly. But Anthony Thompson enslaved Ben Ross. Anthony Thompson became widowed and married the other widower, Mary Brodus. Mary Brodus then came to Anthony Thompson's farm with Rick Green, Harriet Tubman's mother. So you had Harriet Tubman's mother and father then finally in the same location okay around like the early 1800s and then mary brodus died but her son from her first marriage edward was still living with anthony thompson once anthony thompson's stepson edward brodus came of age he then took writ green Harry Tubman's then mother off of and out of the home of Anthony Thompson. And he lived in Bucktown, which was several miles away. So Harry Tubman was born at Anthony Thompson's farm. But when she was like two, three, four years old, when Edward Brodus came of age, took Rick Green and Harry Tubman and her brothers off of the plantation, off of Anthony Thompson's farm and went to, Edward Brodus's home. That, so, that makes a lot more sense. Okay. Yes. And so, and yeah. And so then you have Ben Ross still there because Ben Ross is working as basically a, a timber cruiser, someone, someone who's overseeing the timber operation. And that's one thing I think we need to remember too, is that people who were enslaved weren't just in cotton fields or just weren't tobacco fields. They were doing a lot of different things. And in this case, Ben Ross was overseeing a timber operation on Anthony Thompson's farm. And so he was there when the timber was getting cut and when it was being put on a Blackwater River to be shipped to other places um, to be sold. So that's why Ben Ross lived there and stayed there. And they would visit each other when they could. Um, eventually, upon Anthony Thompson's death, Ben then was given his freedom within five years. So he was given 10 acres. So we refer to it as Ben's 10, the site, as Ben's 10, because it's Ben Ross's 10 acres. So Ben's there with 10 acres to use. He wasn't given, he wasn't given it to use or to sell. He was given it just to live in until his, his death. Until his oh, death. Okay. So he didn't own yeah. it as property then. No. Got you. So just so right he, of possess, like right of use, not really of ownership, exactly. that part of, okay, yeah. got it. So he was able to live there with his 10 acres and use any of the timber on his property or other parts of the Thompson property for whatever he needed it for, to sell or to build or to burn whatever um so then what you have is once Harriet tubman is beginning to move back and forth between maryland and other in in pennsylvania and new york and up to canada when she's like moving people up and down um from this location they never suspected that ben ross was part of this they always looked at him as someone who's trustworthy that you know ben would never do that and then eventually when they kind of caught on that he's kind of part of this whole underground railroad um, you know, shenanigans, they basically were 
were going to go out and arrest him. But before they could arrest him, that's when he went ahead and left with Harriet. And um, so he eventually left. So even though he was free at some point, he then had to leave just for his own safety. Right, right. And what about Harriet's mother? Harriet's mother also went at that time. Okay, okay. All right. Wow, that's amazing. Um, Julie, we're going to take a quick station break, and then I'll come back with a question. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find podcasts. Today we are speaking with Julie Shablitsky about leading an archaeological investigation of the home of Ben Ross, an enslaved black man who was the father of famed abolitionist and underground railroad conductor Harriet Tubman. So this is a really complicated genealogy. And so, of course, you and your team had to do a lot of research beyond the archaeology. You had to do a lot of probably genealogical research, historical research. You had to go in and look at plat maps. And and just tell us a little bit about that historical research and documentation that you had to do to um, to even understand what was happening with Ben Ross and this piece of land. Well, the beauty about the Harriet Tubman story is that there is this great historian named Kate Larson who has done all the genealogy research that's um, that's associated with the family. Uh, but the, but what she hasn't done is she hasn't really understood how the landscape um, looked in or where these sites were in that area of, of the eastern shore of Maryland. So we had a lot of the genealogy done. We we know you know how many you know siblings. She had, and we know about her parents a little bit. And um, the only two pieces of um, the only two pieces of documents that we had that would tell us about where Ben Ross lived, um, again, it didn't give us exactly where X marked the spot; it just gave us general location. So there's only so much that's out there, and I think that's what really speaks to the beauty of archaeology is that where you don't know exactly where a site is, or you don't really know how someone lived, or you don't you know, know how far apart people were from each other. This is where archaeology kind of comes to the rescue. And um, you can also have the ability to get really up close and personal with these important historical characters because they've left behind these like little calling cards for you to to know more about them if you know how to read them. And so even though archives and genealogy were part of it um, and important to find and, and direct us and to get us started, it's not what we're finishing. We're finishing with looking at the artifacts and the artifacts are what are really, I think, personal because um, with at Ben Ross's home, we know that Harriet Tubman came back there to work with him during her teenage years. And so we're finding things like broken tobacco pipe stems that are made out of clay. We're finding uh, prosser porcelain buttons um, from their clothing. Uh, we're finding even, uh, um, you know, teacups with patterns on them. We're finding uh, chamber pots, things that were really personal that they would have used. Uh, so we're finding these sorts of, of bits of things that told us what were on the shelves. We're finding bits of their furniture, so a drawer pole. And I think one of the most important artifact types that we're finding that where we knew that this was a home is we're finding bits of architecture. So broken window glass, uh, nails that date from that mid-19th century time period, uh, bricks, and the bricks are interesting because it tells us that this wasn't a, a super stable home. It's not something with a large, you know, brick foundation or brick walls. It was simply a wooden building that was put on brick piers that sat there and eventually 
the humidity and, you know, maybe even a tree falling out, it eventually, you know, causes demise. So at some point during the mid 19th century, that building um, fell into disrepair and was no longer occupied. Um, ben had gone, his family had gone north and it was there and eventually uh, the woods and, and, and forest overtook it and it's now an archeological site. It's been logged on top of. Um, so really we're left with just crumbs of what used to be his home, but that's still enough to, to reintroduce us to this man who helped raise a very, very important daughter. Right, and provide that context, as you said, for a lot of the skills that probably made her um, so successful at, at what she was able to do and what she was able to achieve. Um, a couple of things. Um, one is that because you said this was such a swampy sort of area or there's there's a lot of sort of wetlands adjacent or nearby, um, was there a concern about being able to preserve the site because water levels might be rising, perhaps linked to climate change, did that factor into also the urgency to do some do some work to document and preserve the, the site and the artifacts? Yes, the Fish and Wildlife Service was very interested in this particular location because it is, is going to be um, inundated very soon and become wetlands. Um, there is sea level rise in that part of Dorchester County of Maryland, and it's it's really seeing a devastating effect. You can see slowly the trees on the edge of these wetlands is dying. And this dieback is, it's, it's very visible and it's very obvious what's happening. Uh, in our archeological site, um, it, was, was, it was very common for us to dig a hole and only go down a foot. And we'd return the next morning and it'd be inundated and filled up with water. So that makes it almost impossible for us to dig in a controlled, yeah, controlled levels. And it also, you know, is very difficult to preserve artifacts like iron because iron of course and water and oxygen don't exactly mix so you end up with you know our rusty bits all over the place Pile of rust. Yeah. yeah oh my goodness yeah. um julie was this a home where we think people on the underground railroad actually might have stayed would would they have stayed in ben ross's house or yeah I don't, I don't think so. It's possible, but I think that, you know, their goal was to move north. And this is kind of like off the beaten track, if you will. And did people stay there to kind of stay out of sight, perhaps? But we don't have any evidence or archival information for that. Okay. So in your research, Julie, and, and in this project and um, around this project, have you worked with the descendant community members, um, members of Harriet Tubman's family? Um, Ben Ross's family, um, the extended family? Yeah, absolutely. Harriet Tubman uh, did not have any children, but she did have nieces and nephews, and those nieces and nephews um, survived, and they have descendants today living around the area, and actually as far west as Seattle, Washington. So um, so they are aware of their great-aunts, great-great-great-aunts, great accomplishments, and um, one of them in particular, Tina Wyatt, who lives in D.C., has been a great, great resource. And she's there because when you're doing this sort of history, it's black history and it's their story. It's their ancestors stories. And so you have to reach out to them because it's important to tell them what they want to know. As an archaeologist and scientist, we have our own like questions about how many teacups do they have? And what do these teacups mean? But what does it mean to them and what do they want to know? And before we even start an archaeological project, it's imperative that you reach out to these descendant communities 
and find out what they want to know and bring them along with us. So when I was out there excavating and pulling broken things out of the ground, I would put it in my palm, take a photograph of it and text it to Tina Wyatt and, um, and Douglas over in on the West, West coast. I'm like, this is what we're finding. And I'm like, that's fabulous. Like, what does this mean? And what could it have been? And so they were in a sense looking right over my shoulder as I'm pulling these artifacts out of the ground that hadn't been touched for 200 years. That, that just gives that. me chills yeah. to think about, you know, thinking this, if this was your great aunt or whatever, to be like, did she ever sip or her yeah. dad sip out of this yeah. teacup and you're holding it right there? That's just fascinating. That's wonderful. I have just a really another quick question to add on to that, too. So I know, Julie, you've done some work with DNA and, and tobacco pipe stems before. Is there any work to try to um, do some DNA work on on pipe stems or, or those chamber pots or chamber yep. pots <laughs> with this site. <laughs> yeah. So, so the thing is, is that, yeah, any artifact that has come into contact with bodily fluids is a potential candidate for DNA testing. So we, what we found with clay tobacco pipes is that if you think about people's oral hygiene in the past, they didn't have the dental, um, the dentists that we have today. So they have a lot of cavities. They have a lot of, you know, ulcerating teeth. There's a lot of blood and saliva happening in there. And so when you put a very porous piece of um, pipe in your mouth, a lot of that saliva in those um, fluids would be whipped up inside of that artifact. And then if it's quickly and enters the archaeological record, that DNA on that pipe stem can be preserved. And so what we did in Anwarl County, which is also in Maryland, is we found a clay tobacco pipe and I sent it to Copenhagen and they did DNA testing on it and ended up finding that the person who had smoked it was a woman and she was most closely related to the Mendy of Sierra Leone, West Africa, which is really, really important and exciting because if you can get the sort of data from an artifact like this, which are ubiquitous in archaeological sites, these like pipe stems, then why can't you try it in some place like Harriet Tubman's you know, sites? These, so and what can we learn? And can we link Tina Wyatt in D.C. or, you know, Douglas in Seattle, Washington, can we link them with these artifacts? Um, but the problem with a lot of these artifacts is that the DNA isn't intact enough. It's an intact enough to look at ancestry and perhaps even whether it's a man or woman that smoked the pipe, but not necessarily enough information survives in most cases to link those to living descendants today. Okay. Okay. But you can rule out some things and you can figure out a few things. That's so exciting. Um, And who knows, maybe you'll get lucky on one of them. Um, So what, what will eventually happen to the artifacts, Julie? Do they, um, do they go to a special repository in the state or a federal institution? Where would people be able to see them or study them? Well, that's a very good question because um, this is next month will be the 200th anniversary of Harriet Tubman's birthday and the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Visitor Center and Museum is located just outside of Cambridge, Maryland, on the Eastern Shore. And for the first time, these artifacts will be on display so that people can come and see them and learn about the things that were inside of Ben Ross's home. And, uh, but we haven't stopped. You know, we're continuing to look for more of Harriet Tubman's sites. She has her childhood home in Bucktown um, on the Brodus property, so we're going to be looking for that home. And we're also going to be looking for other quarter sites that are associated with Anthony Thompson's property. So, and we have a good lead. We found some artifacts that we think are in great shape. It's a, it's a, it's a, we're really excited about the work. In fact, we're going back next month to look for more. 
it's going to just fill out this picture of her childhood and growing up of what made her become the woman she was. That's fascinating research. Yeah, and archaeology also makes us kind of go back and re-examine old historical documents and, and ask different questions that might get us new answers. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So the, ar- the archaeology is by no means done. You're, you still have a lot to do, and you get to go back next month. You're, you're heading yes. back into the field. So will you be excavating all summer long then? Do you ha- will you have a long field season this year? or? Well, the other thing we have to contend with, just like Harriet Tubman had to contend with, was were the bugs and the heat. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do a couple weeks this spring and then return probably in the fall and do a little bit more. So we plan to excavate most of these sites because in the next few years, they could be gone and not accessible anymore. So once they're gone and underwater, you can't excavate them anymore. So we're, we're hoping to rescue them. This is, this is definitely a rescue mission in, in archaeology. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Well, that's, that's amazing and fascinating. Um, so exciting. So... Julie, tell us a little bit more before we close today about the research you did on the medieval site in Scotland. I'm headed there in June, and so I, I'm personally interested. But but just also thinking of medieval sites, I think of feudal systems. You sort of you think of serfs, which isn't necessarily the same thing as slaves mm-hmm. at all. But but still, I'm just wondering what your experience was like there, and and um, what you learned from it, and has that informed anything in terms of the work you're doing now? Well, it's interesting because the people in Scotland are the people that eventually came here to Maryland in the Chesapeake. So you see a lot of, of what, a lot of the archaeology looks very similar, at least from the 18th and 19th century to, to what's here, because that's a lot of the artifacts we're finding actually came from over there. So the material culture is very similar. But you're right. What's, what's interesting is that if you've ever watched Downton Abbey, um, you have the people who are, are in servitude and those who, you know, live off of the backs of those who, who are serving them. Um, and so we saw some of that. Specifically, we were looking at Amosfield Tower, which was a more an elite, you know, fortified tower. Um, there was a lot of wars, a lot of um, fighting. And we excavated around this moated feature. And that's where we found similar artifacts, a lot of um, food remains. We found coins from the time of Mary, Queen of Scots. So again, it's a little bit older than here, but um, but still, it's, it's fascinating. I think it's what it's informed us and made me think about is how closely we're connected. Even though we have this ocean between us, that that the same people that were living there eventually came here, and and they are part of us. Part of us and part of that system that enslaved Harriet Tubman and her dad, and and eventually, you know, helped her in some ways to free her, depending on you know, where, where the ancestry fell along Mm -hmm. that. Um, Well, thank you so much, Julie. This has been fascinating today. And um, we were running up against the end of our time. But um, we are looking forward to hearing more about your research um, about places related to Harriet Tubman's family and her childhood. And we're so excited to hear that there, that there's more that's coming up this summer. So we encourage everyone to follow this story and um, we're grateful that you took so much time to talk with us today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks Julie so much. Thank you, Julie. And thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us. If you love this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe. So it shows up in your podcast feed each week and If you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would sure appreciate it. We also wanted to give a 
big shout out to our first ever Patreon supporter. Yay! Her name is Loretta Hoots. And so we just started on Patreon, which is a wonderful website where you can, if you love this podcast, you can go on and subscribe and join and, and for donate. a dollar a day <laughs> or a couple dollars a day. And if you donate, I mean, not a day, it's a month. A month. Yeah. I really want to erase that part. Yeah. A dollar a month. Um, and if you're, if you're a, a Boulder supporter, you even get one of our archaeologically scented candles, um, which are super fun. So you'll have to look into those. Yeah. So just go to the Patreon site and then um, type in the dirt on the past and you will find us. And we would love your support so we can keep doing these wonderful interviews with people like Julie. So thanks everybody for listening today. And we hope you can join us again to find out more about the The dirt dirt on on the past. past.